It all goes into the way it is packaged and presented. It is neatly packaged, and everyone understands what's happening, how it will affect them, and then present it to the masses. You know, people might be more receptive to say, "Okay, I will hear you out. I will listen." But I think that the moment that people that are right now at the forefront that are pushing this and saying, you've got to do this, and this is, if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen because you're a bad person, people completely shut down and they're turned off. And like you said, like with the numbers, throwing all the numbers out there and the number says this and that and that, you've already, they've already tuned out. But if it is presented in a way such that, you know, this is not going to cure all the problems. This is, this is just one aspect of it that we could probably improve on, and still you can live a happy life. But the moment you start saying, stop it, cut it out, you can't do it anymore, and we're just going to eradicate it immediately, you know, there's always going to be a pushback. And people aren't going to be receptive, and they're not going to want to listen. They're not going to want to do it. If anything, they're going to fight against it. And then you'll have what we have now, the discourse with both sides screaming at the other, and nothing gets done. Hi, this is Josh, and this is The Joshua Spodek Show, formerly Leadership in the Environment. I still bring you leaders in the area of the environment in the form of leaders and role models. Everyone treats stewardship like a burden or a chore, deprivation, sacrifice. So did I until I actually tried it seriously. It is a joy. Everything about it. We're here to share that joy. Meet amazing world-renowned people from all parts of life. Hear about them, what the environment means to them, and hear most of them find something meaningful to act on and then to share their experience. Why? Because stewardship and acting to help others for something greater than all of us creates about the greatest feeling humans can get, as does fresh air, clear water, delicious food, and clean land. That's what we're bringing you. For Rob and my second conversation, we covered his experience with separating his recycling. I want to go back. The first time that he and I met, we spoke for three hours. We had scheduled to eat famous no-packaging vegetable stew, and then to record, we ended up talking for three hours partly as meeting person to person for the first time or speaking a bunch for the first time, but also talking about what people in this country with different political views, they probably used to do sometime before I was born, but I don't see them do it anymore. We also ate the famous no packaging vegetable stew. The second time we recorded last episode, but we also spoke a good hour unrecorded. It's not that we plan to keep things unrecorded. I think that we don't want to wander all over the place. And at least I want to maintain this podcast strategy of the format that we have. But As you'll hear at the end of this conversation, we're talking about continuing our conversation in other media. So stay tuned about Rob and Josh covering issues only comedians do these days, but in a more serious way. Well, media covers them, but I see them mostly catering or pandering to people who agree with them to create outrage or to create self, I don't know, feeling good about yourself. In any case, let's listen to Rob and his experience with separating glass and plastic and other topics that come up generally of political interest. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Rob Harper. Rob, how are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm very good. And I'm going to put this teaser out for the listeners that, um, again, we just spoke for like an hour or more, maybe it was like 90 minutes on, we talked about race and gender and politics, the environment, all sorts of things. And hopefully we'll get to it. I have a feeling we're going to record a bunch of conversations beyond just these. Let the record show. He was like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> conversations with Rob and Josh. You heard the yep. But like, I saw the, like this nod. <laughs> And I wanted really to cover your experience. Well, can you remind us what it was? I think it was three weeks ago. Yes, three weeks ago. We had been talking previously about the environment and whatnot. And there was a challenge, so to speak, that 
I had mentioned to you that I don't like having plastic and glasses together. Uh, we recycle in my building, but everything is recycled together. So you said, well, why don't you try separating the two? And I'm like, okay, I can try it. I don't know how far it will go. So you gave me the assignment and I'm here proud to say that, and I actually took a picture and I sent it to you. Which I saw, yeah. Yes, and uh, I was able to separate the glass from the plastic in my apartment. What I found challenging was that... Uh, I don't know if I'll continue doing it because I get kind of like obsessed with it whenever someone would come over. Uh, well, in, in general, when I think about it, everything in my apartment for the most part is plastic. When I'm throwing things away, is plastic. Every so often, I might have a glass jar here or there. But I did manage to create a little section with glass at some of the jars. But I, I found it challenging, to say the least. What was the challenge? I was obsessed with it, I think. <laughs> in a weird way, I was obsessed. I was... Constantly watching people who would come in and out of my apartment with what they had. Whenever they would say, where's the trash? Where's the garbage? I would say, why? What do you want to throw away? So I was looking at what they were throwing away. And I would say, okay, the garbage is there. And I'm like, okay, put the glass over here. It's like, well, this is not glass. This is plastic. I'm like, okay, you're safe. But I don't know. They probably thought it was kind of a, you know, <laughs> kind of strange watching what they were throwing away. And interestingly enough, the other day I had company who stayed over. And I mentioned to them, I said, you know, I recycle. They said, okay, fine. I'm like, but I want the glass here and I want the plastic in this container. And they just gave me a look and smiled. They wow. <laughs> said, okay, whatever. So the challenge was social and the challenge, it sounded like it was an internal kind of struggle of like, how far do I want to take this? Am I reading that right? Right. How far I, how far was I going to take it? Because I know that we had had the conversation. So I think the conversation was in my mind. As I had mentioned to you, I don't like the two touching each other, but I never did anything about it. So once you said, well, why don't you try it? That was on my mind throughout the entire three weeks to make certain that they didn't touch and to make certain that I had a place for the glass. I usually ask this question a bit later, but what was the emotional experience? Was it fun, annoying? Were you like, oh, this is fine that I'm doing this? Or was it like, <laughs> Josh, why is he? It was tiresome. It was tiresome because I was constantly thinking about it. I was constantly trying to make certain that the glass did not touch, the, literally did not touch the plastic, although they were in separate bags, it was just one of those things I wanted to make sure they did not touch. That's you alone or were you with other people? Me alone. Now, me, of course, you say other people, me making certain whatever they threw away, that they put it in the proper plastic bag, but I didn't want them. Oh, that's interesting because I was putting the glass in a plastic bag, so the glass was touching the plastic, although they weren't touching the other containers that were plastic. So you didn't want them touching, I mean... I'm looking at the pictures, and they don't look like the bags are near each other. I, I presume they're on different sides, different parts uh, Well, of the they're not near each other there in the picture. That was a staged picture. Okay. <laughs> but in the apartment itself, they were, they were side by side. I had the glass, the bag for the glass, and then for the plastic, trash for the plastic, and regular trash. And have you continued the whole three weeks? I continued the entire three weeks. I actually took the picture last night, and I said, Whew, this is over. <laughs> What was the word used? Not frustration. Tiresome. Tiresome. Did it increase in tiresome over the time, decrease in tiresome, stay flat? No, when I say tiresome, now that I think about it, maybe anxiety is probably a better adjective to describe it. Because I was obsessed with making certain that the two didn't commingle. And I know it sounds kind of strange, mm -hmm. but I made certain that people came over if they had trash to throw away. And, and that's another interesting thing. Why do people come over and say, hey, do you have a trash can? I need to throw something away. It's like, you're going to come to my apartment and <laughs> throw away your trash? 
do it in your own apartment. But that's another topic. I was just, just wanted to make certain that they didn't touch each other and that they did put them. And maybe it was because I had told you that I was going to try separating the two. You know, that anxiety set in. I wanted to make certain that the glasses didn't commingle with the plastic containers or the other trash. How did the other people react? I mean, you described a little bit, but you said there were a lot well, of people. Well, right. Uh, last week, I had uh, someone who spent overnight, and I made certain, I said, you know, I recycle. They just looked at me and said, oh, okay. And then people who would come over who would say, where's your trash? You know, and I would say, you know, put this here and that there. And I was more, I mean, because I think they know that I have these little quirks. So they just looked at me and gave me the eye, rolled the eye and said, yeah, okay, Rob, okay, okay. You know, and they made certain that, you know, they put the plastic with the plastic and the glass with the glass. Now, because of the person that I am, I would always go behind them to make certain that they didn't get it confused. So that probably, you know, added to them looking at me saying, okay, here we go again. So, Have you heard about this place in Japan where the the community got to, they were, they were going to make some plants and they couldn't, a, a cleaning plant or something like that, like a decade ago, I think. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't afford it. And they got together. And as a community, they decided we're going to totally separate everything. I remember reading an article where they're separating into at least 30 different, like this kind of plastic, that kind of plastic, this kind of metal, that kind of metal. And then I read another article more recently where they're up to in the 40s, the number of separations. But they don't view it as a burden, as far as I can tell. I mean, uh, the articles tend to be like pro what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But I think like old people are finding like they're going they're finding things to do to help this process. So they'll like, go to the plant and help people sort stuff or something like that. Right. Anyway, they're up to like 40 separations. Some people say, this is ridiculous. That's crazy. Right. My response is, what's ridiculous is that we're making 40 different types of things that could be done. Like each one is probably great. Mm-hmm. It probably this specialization, it makes us more efficient, but efficiency doesn't always lead to less waste. It right. often leads to the opposite. And the solution to me is to stop making so many different types of things that can't break down. Or if you combine them, then if, you, if what will cause one thing to break down won't cause the other to break down. And so right. it's just going to stay there forever. Well, that's interesting that you would say it because in the process of me segregating the glass from the plastic, I also had cardboard boxes and things that were made out of uh, you know paper, hard paper. And I thought about that. I'm like, mm, maybe I should separate the cardboard boxes also. And the paper ring that's for uh, paper towels a little hold. I thought oh, about yeah, that. I'm like, but well, maybe I should separate that as well. And I thought about it. I'm like, nah, I'm just putting this in regular trash. That's just too much. Because for me, when I'm doing things like that, I want to have a huge area for it so that when I go in, have a container for the plastic, for the cardboard, and then for the regular trash. Then if I do that, I'm going to keep breaking it down. Okay, what about the leftover food? Okay, so I have a container for that. And okay, I got the leftover food. Well, what about just like the regular trash when you're sweeping, you have dust and whatnot. What about that when you're cleaning, dumping your dry clean, your, uh, your vacuum? So all these things start going into my mind. Hence, the anxiety started coming in as I'm thinking, well, maybe I can separate this. I can separate that. I'm like, wait, I'm only going to do the glass and the plastic just to keep it simple. So going back to what you're saying, I mean, just hearing that, I would think, Oh my gosh, where are we going with all this? I mean, we're going to be separating everything and then there's more work and what is the end goal? And then where are we going to put all this stuff as opposed to just putting it all together and hoping that they live harmoniously together? (laughs) You know, a hundred years ago, things being made out of different things meant like this wood would be made out of pine and that would be made out of birch and that would be made out of oak and they all decompose just fine. Uh But if this is made out of PET and this is made out of some other type of plastic, and this is like some bunch of polymers that are mixed together. Those don't break, or they break down over hundreds of years or thousands right. of years, as opposed to trees break down like right away. Right. So 
people didn't have to worry about this stuff before. Everything was fine. Like nothing lasted too long. Everything was food for the microbes at the, at the least. Plastic isn't such great food for microbes. Maybe, maybe in the future, there'll be the microbe. It's not there now. So we've chosen, well, unconsciously, I would say, but we've gone down a path of making stuff that doesn't break down. And when we created it, I probably would have made the same choice not knowing if I didn't know what would happen. But we now create stuff that it seems a lot of it poisons us in the manufacturer. It pollutes the world in the manufacturer. Right. It gets into things that we eat and then we eat it and it higher up the food chain, we get it more and more concentrated. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all have plastic in our veins. We all have all these crazy endocrine disrupting chemicals and so forth. And to me, at first I'm like, this is a pain in the butt. And then I'm like, the pain in the butt, like I got to handle this mess that right. we have allowed ourselves to create. Creating the mess is the problem to me. Mm-hmm. And we're not accounting. There are costs that I'm paying for right. that someone else accrued. Mm-hmm. As a businessman, businesses can't function if you can't account effectively. You end up having businesses that work that everyone wants to go bankrupt, but they don't. And if some things that go bankrupt that everyone wants them to work, right. when you don't account, it doesn't work. Like Try to run a business without knowing any accounting. It can be done. Mm-hmm. It's not going to work as well as if you know accounting. And the way I know accounting tells me that if two people sell me something and one of them has to account for cleaning up their mess and the other one doesn't, it's going to be cheaper to go with the one who doesn't. That doesn't mean the mess doesn't have to be cleaned up and someone doesn't have to pay for it. It's just others have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And as it is now, I mean, looking at the Pacific Ocean and the gyre and uh, the multiple gyres and all the plastic in there and all this filtering up the food chain and so forth, those are costs that I wish the manufacturer had recovered in the costs. Right. But right now, the environment is paying for the cost because there isn't a cleanup. And I was just looking here online just to see when plastic was first introduced. I think it was almost 100 years ago, 1907. And at the time, we introduced it, plastic. And from 1907 to coming up today, plastic was the latest and the greatest thing. It helped us in so many different ways in our lives, and it's part of our lives. So now we've got to get rid of it. So here's what people come to me and they say, what, do you, what should we do? And what, I've, what I'm realizing now is that I don't, one, I don't know all the answers. I don't think anybody knows all the answers. Right. But I don't know anyone who's actually asking it. I think the overwhelming majority of people are like, this is really hard. Someone else deal with it. And as I said before, I think what we see in the environment is the outward manifestation of our beliefs and feelings and, and what motivates us are our, our, our models for the environment. And if we're making a, a, a big polluted mess... And I say, you know, New York City, everyone expects me to say that there's pollution all over the ground. But I think I mentioned before that when I was off in the middle of nowhere between on the train between L.A. and Houston, where it had been hours before there was cell phone reception, let alone any kind of Wi-Fi. And it stops periodically at these like whistle stops. There's like one little wooden shack. Right. Nothing around. Why did I stop there? I think because everyone gets off and smokes a cigarette. (laughs) So I have this thing where I pick up a piece of trash every day Mm -hmm. and I was wondering, am I going to be able to pick up trash today? So we stop, I walk out, (laughs) Coca-Cola bottles, Marlboro packs, right there, you know, in the middle of nowhere. So it's not just New York City. It's not just LA. Mm -hmm. It's the whole country. Right. And, you know, when we were taking the train between, I mean, on the train, looking out the window periodically, I'd see little disposable stuff. Who's to say that just like random bags of, of, of Fritos empty in the Grand Canyon, maybe there's a beauty to that. Maybe we should have more. (laughs) 
Personally, I like less of that. Right. <laughs> but who am I to impose on others? I would like to get a democratic process to vote to make some of the stuff at least accountable. Right. Accountable in the sense of, of if the disposable and the non-disposable impose different costs on us, then that should be accounted for. Right. And when I say should, I don't mean everyone should do what I say. I mean, I believe I would vote for a law that said we have to account for the cost of cleaning this stuff up. Okay. Having said that, two, two points I want to make. When I think of plastic, when you're saying, you know, you were going from L.A. to Houston and you saw the plastic, you know, out and about, I always think of the origin. Like, what was that plastic at one point in time? Like you said, the Frito-Lay bag. At one point, Fritos were there inside that bag. It was sitting in the store. Someone purchased it. Someone ate it. Someone either finished it and threw it out by the wayside, say, I don't want this anymore. Or they took it, put it in the garbage, and someone turned the garbage over. And hence, it flew, and there it is. You know? So I always think of the origin, what happened. Now, going to the point where you say the accountability. What if a law was passed and said, okay, the manufacturer of this plastic, whenever you make this, you've got to pay X amount of money because you know or we know that it's going to be hard to dispose or get rid of. So because of that, there's an excess tax that we're going to put on those goods. People will probably push back at that because they know that the consumer, that cost, would be passed down to the consumer. It's already passed on to society. Ah. It's just moving it from one place to another. It's right. not a new cost. Uh-huh. Accounting doesn't make costs go away. Uh-huh. Accounting means it goes to where it comes from. Right. If, if I have an HR department that incurs a certain cost and I charge it to the sales department, it's going to mess up the sales. It's going to mess up HR. They're not going right. to know how to run their business or they're, they're part of the business. Mm-hmm. If HR incurs a cost, I should account it to HR. Right. And if sales incurs a cost, I should account it to sales. How can the business run if you don't know what costs anything? Mm-hmm. That's what we're doing right now. I don't see how any business person could look at the system we have now. Let's look at it more clearly. I, I think this is more clear. We subsidize producing corn and wheat and soy. And a lot of that stuff is going to feed cattle and feed animals to make meat. And a lot of it is also going into unhealthy products at the supermarket. Frito-Lay, for example. Mm. And I mean, there's whole aisles of the markets, which are just like various combinations of, of corn and soy mixed together with kind of weird coloring. Right. And I don't eat any of that stuff. I was going to ask you, do you eat chips? I haven't had chips in a long time. Wow. And I'm paying for it. Uh-huh. My taxes are paying for those right. subsidies. I don't like that. <laughs> and I don't know if you saw my blog post today about my electrical bill. When I break it down, my electrical cost last year for just the electrical, yep. $1.99. No, that was a tax, $1.90. Mm-hmm. The surcharges, 20 bucks, more than 10 times more. Right. I'm paying for other people's infrastructure uh-huh. and people are using so much more. So we have to build up this infrastructure to give them power. And I don't see that it's making them happier. Right. Do they have the right? Sure. <laughs> but I have to pay for people cleaning, hauling up all the trash on the streets. I have to pay for people to pick up all the garbage off the streets. I prefer we don't have all that garbage there. So we got to pay for all this maintenance of, of bridges and tunnels to get the stuff in. Right. Then I forget what the, I, I looked it up, what the costs were for the sanitation department of New York City. I think it's like a billion dollars a year. A lot of it is hauling out stuff I didn't bring in here. To me, this seems like the most conservative thing in the world. It's like, if that were accounted for more accurately, I think most people would reduce the amount of garbage that they got. We could save billions of dollars. You know, that, 
I wonder how do the Amish live? Because they don't live with a lot of the things that we have here now. To me, the sense of community, I'm, I'm not Amish. I've never spent time there. Right. I've seen a few things on TV. Right. I extrapolate a bit from what I know of other communities that are uh-huh. somewhat similar. I bet their sense of community and connection is much higher than ours. They live a very simplistic life. Hmm, I need to look into that. I wonder if they have plastic. And if they you, I don't know the if you were here in 2003, we had the, um, no, 2004? Anyway, there's a, a blackout in, yep. in New York City. Yep. Do you remember what happened? What, what, what happened with you? Do you remember what you did? Your uh, experience? Yes, I walked home. I uh, had candles. And uh, yeah, my food ruined in my fridge. And it was a very, it was an inconvenience. I didn't like it at all. Okay. That's different than what I hear from most people. Uh-huh. There was a girl I was dating. Uh-huh. And I was like, she's uptown. This is romantic. I mean, you know, hopefully it's no terrorism and stuff like that. But I can't do anything about that. So... So how do I get there? No buses, no subway. So I started hitchhiking. And these guys picked me up and they said, get on in. And there's like a whole bunch of people in the back of this van. Right. And there's like a bed in the van that was like, they, they weren't set up for this. I mean, it was just like, they happened to be there. I'm like, get on in. Other people were like giving rides for like a hundred bucks. Right. These guys were going the opposite direction. It was really fun. So I get up there. We have a romantic night and it's really uh-huh. great. And um, some people in East Village, they were like setting up bonfires in, in right. um, Tompkins Park. And they're like, stockbrokers and homeless people like getting together and uh-huh. like doing dancing and everyone that I heard now you're maybe the only exception <laughs> had a really positive experience, uh-huh. you know, concern about what well, it might've been different if it lasted right. or longer. One of my big takeaways was that a lot of our technology is keeping us separate. Right. And when, when the technology goes away and all we got is each other, we're actually pretty cool together. Well, right. We're cool together. For the initial aspect, because we know that around the corner, we're going to have it back. So, yeah, I think people fall in love with that idea. So, similarly, as far as getting rid of a lot of the things we have with plastic, I think that it's a good idea. People, well, No, I don't think that it's a good idea. I think that people think that it's a good idea, and they might say, wow, this would be great. But then once you actually start doing it, and you realize some of the things that you're doing now that you were dependent upon it— mm-hmm. It's like, it's a different story. It's like, mm, I don't know if that was such a great idea. I kind of miss plastic because it's been around for almost 100 years. At least it makes a more informed decision based on experience, not just only knowing one side. Yep, I, I agree. I agree. But it, once it's gone, I mean, plastic bags, my groceries, my produce, I wrap things in it. I actually like plastic. I don't know if I could live without plastic. Let's just say there's everything we do affects the environment. I'm exhaling carbon dioxide right now. Yeah. That's a greenhouse gas. Right. So there's no purely benign. And the earth has the ability, even plastic breaks down at some point. As far as I know, it hasn't started breaking down yet. Yeah. And it's been around for a hundred years. So that's scary. Basically all the plastic, all the plastics that have ever been produced is still here now. Wow. And we're producing, and we're producing more all the time, not less. So you like plastic. Do you like it in the amount that we have? Do we need as much as we have? Do we like it to be so disposable? Now, maybe the answer is yes. Uh But to me, the bag that I go shopping with, I think I bought it in the 90s. And so it's it's, it's like nylon. So it's a plastic bag. Right. But it's lasted decades and it's got a lot of life left left in it. Mm -hmm. So do we have to be so profligate about it? So if anyone's suggesting that how we're treating plastic now is optimal, I would need evidence of this being optimal. If it's not optimal... What would be more optimal? We always have to have a balance between how many of us there are and how much waste each of us produces and, right. and Earth's ability, 
you know, the natural processes process this stuff. Right. So what's that balance? Right. I, my understanding is that we are now between the number of us and how much waste do we produce as, as a species, we're way over what the earth can handle. Right. So if that's the case, how do we rebalance this? Well, the question, you say that we're way over what the earth can handle. How do we know that we're, because we never experienced yeah, Huge error bars. Yeah. So uh, huge uncertainties in this. Okay. So, so we're not saying, you're, or you're not saying, just get rid of plastic completely because plastic is in just about everything that we do in life, everything that we touch just about, uh, surgeries. Yeah. When I had Beth Comstock, former CMO of GE, mm-hmm. uh, on this podcast, she said she was going to go a week with no plastic. And one of the great signs of leadership that I've seen is that when she came on the next time, she was like, I couldn't do it. Right. I had no idea. Like she had run eco-imagination at GE or had played a major role in eco-imagination at GE, which uh-huh. was trying to bring GE to be more green, which like no one believed. So they, uh-huh. she said, we have to be as we personally, we leaders of this company, emailed her the top levels of one. This at, at the time was like a fortune five, fortune three company. They had to live the values. So even having her, just having said that, having lived green values in the middle of GE, she realized she didn't know what she was talking about. And she openly said that to most leaders, most would-be leaders won't allow that kind of vulnerability. And she did. Uh, big credit to her. I learned a lot from that experience. Right. Most of us have no clue how much plastic. I, I, look, there's plastic everywhere. Right, right. I mean, because when I think about it, if you were to tell me, try to go a week without plastic. Okay. And I would say, okay, sure, I can do it. Then I would mean Plastic bags. I could probably do without plastic bags because I have cloth bags. Buying things from the store. No, then that would become challenging because when I go to the store, if I buy meat, it's wrapped in plastic. So they keep your clothes, right? Nylon is plastic, but so it would be it would be extremely difficult to. Now that I'm thinking about it, I wouldn't be able to do it. Probably impossible. Yeah. Right. So what I'm working on is not get rid of all plastic. Mm-hmm. Although I, it's some kind of long-term goal or like, I don't know what the solution is, but the way to get there is to, we as a culture say we got to address this and to address it. And I think that as long as we are reading and analyzing and debating, but not actually doing, right. we don't know what we're talking about. Right. And because what makes it happen is not science alone. It's not simply like understanding the molecules and so forth. It's right. as anyone who goes to the gym knows you don't change overnight. And it's not just lifting the weights. You got to, the social emotional skills and challenges of going to the gym. If, if this analogy, if, hopefully I'm not stretching it too far, but if you want to lift weights to get strong, yes, you have to lift the weights. That's really in the long haul. That's a, a minor part of it. You have to reprioritize your life so that I'm going to go to the gym, say twice a week. Right. Here's the big challenge. It's Friday night. You haven't gone to the gym twice that week. And you said you would, but you're tired. It's been a long week at work. You got to get up early the next day. The dog pukes, whatever. Mm-hmm. Do you still go to the gym then? And those are the things that you have to figure out. Those right. are the challenges. This is we as people, how we solve our problems. It's not just like, here's an abstract solution. Go do it. Someone else. Right. That's what everyone's doing right now. Because if you go to the gym enough, there's a guy who walks in someday who's read a bunch of books, but doesn't never lifted. And he's like, I'm an expert. And anyone who lifts weights enough knows, you know, how do you, how do you get through an injury? Right. Oh, you want to lift weights? We all we'll look at your diet. You have to look at your circle of friends. You have to look at all these other things. 
where we are now is everyone around the environment, they've read the stuff and they believe themselves an expert, but they haven't actually lifted any weights. Right. They don't have the calluses on their hands. They haven't dealt with the crabs in the bucket of people saying like, you're not going to make it, just give up. Right. Because, you know, because they're saying it for themselves. Exactly. And you are talking to me right now and it's probably different than you would have had you not had this experience, whether you continue it or not. Mm-hmm. How would you characterize this conversation? Well, for one, I will not continue segregating the plastic from the glass. I find it, like I said, it was very, initially I said it was tarsum, but there was a lot of anxiety because I thought it, I started in my mind taking it, you know, uh, extra steps. I think the conversation that we're having is meaningful. And I think it's a conversation that people are able, should be able to have without pointing the finger and feeling that, hey, you're preaching to me. You want me to do something that I really don't necessarily want to do. I mean, the approach that you're taking is not that, Rob, you need to do this. And if you don't do this, the world's going to end. Because as I've told you before, I do believe the world is going to end. Unfortunately, the world will go on without me. Hard to believe, but yeah, <laughs> that's going to happen. But I think that if people were able to have this type of dialogue without pointing the finger at the other person and making them feel guilty or being preachy about it, I think that we would be able to come to a common ground. And not necessarily solve the problem because, as you said, the people that are talking about it, we don't know what's going to happen. We do see that there are statistics. We see that, you know, there's uh, the Antarctic, there's melting. We see that the temperatures are changing and whatnot. Now, from my viewpoint, I would say that's normal. Someone else would say, well, look at the scientific data. This is not normal. There's something at play here. I do believe that there is something at play. Do we have all the answers at our fingertips to stop what's happening? No. Is there one size that fit all? No, I think there are a combination of things. And I think that if people are able to have the dialogues that you and I are having on a larger scale, and as I think something you had pointed out in the last podcast, to take out the wedge, take out the politics, and just sit down and say, hey, this is what we need to do, you know, I think that we could probably move the ball to the next step. Yeah, in your case, you're, you appreciate that I'm not saying you're wrong, you're guilty, here's what you should do. The issue that you are addressing was not plastic in the ocean or plastic anywhere. It was your discomfort with putting these things together in your trash. Right. The hurdle that you hit was not, you didn't tell me it's not making a difference. Mm-hmm. That wasn't actually your issue. Right. You told me tiresome and anxiety. anxiety. That's the issue, at least with you. If I gave you more statistics, that doesn't address your anxiety at all. That doesn't address your tiresome at all. No. Now, I suspect that if you go back to putting them together again, that you've now addressed that there's an issue for you right. of putting these things together. And I don't know you that well. I would guess there's probably a pretty good chance of you just being like, I'm going to do what I used to do. Right. And someday maybe they'll separate things in an easier way and I'll follow the system later then. But for now, you'll do what you used to. But you might also say, I don't know, maybe I, I've, I suspect now you have a heightened awareness of this discomfort. And you might say, well, at least I'll keep, maybe you'll just separate the glass and put the plastic in, or maybe you separate the, I don't know. But I bet you'll keep working on it a bit. I'm not sure. Not that you'll consciously do it, but it'll bother you. Right. I'll I'll tell you now, like I said, I'm not going to continue to separate the two. But probably what would happen is that when I do put the garbage or the trash together, when I get ready to take it to the main uh, trash bin, I'll probably say, "Mm, maybe I could take this jar out and put it to the side. I take this glass out and put it to the side. Knowing fully aware, being fully aware that they're going to probably put them all together once it makes it down the chute. 
you know, but for me <laughs> to think it, I might say, well, let me just take this out and I'll just set it to the side. And if they put it together, that's up to them. But I'll put this to the side. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe it in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. What you're saying is from a, the logistics of what, or the, the physical stuff that you're actually talking about is yes. very different. But the mental process and the emotional process that you're talking about is very similar to when I went for the week with buy no packaged food. Mm-hmm. At first, I was like, what can I do? And then I was like, it kind of bothered me. No, stop. You're scaring me. I hope I'm not getting there. <laughs> well, is that the, is that my metamorphosing? <laughs> is that going to be the next step? Am I going to start doing that? Well, I forget if it was before or after we recorded this. As I mentioned to you, this is to me about joy. Uh-huh. It's about community. It's about right. connection. And I believe that I, what I'm talking about is increased sense of stewardship mm-hmm. of how my behavior affects others. And if what you're asking me is, am I going to get a heightened sense of joy and community and connection? And will I be more sensitive to how my behavior affects others, even those helpless to stop me from doing something that might right. hurt them? Yes, I think probably most people are unaware of how their behavior is affecting others. Mm-hmm. And it's often hurting other people. And we are on the receiving end of it for a lot of people. Right. When I talk about the litter on the streets, I didn't ask for that litter. I don't want it there. I didn't put it there. But a lot of people are littering. It's actually illegal. Right. And they're still doing it anyway. Some of it blows out of the trash can. They put it in there on purpose. And you know, through no means, no fault of their own, it happened. I'm not talking about that. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about you can tell people just put it down on a horizontal. Every horizontal surface in this city is like fair game for people to put stuff down right. and walk away. And People listening to me now are thinking, I don't do that. Well, there's a lot of things that they do that they're not aware of. Right. And I believe that when they take into account how their behavior affects others, and even when that leads to, or dare I say, especially when that leads to them stopping doing something that they used to do, but the reason they don't do it is out of a sense of community, out of a sense of, I know my neighbors. I care about my neighbors. This affects my neighbors. That they're going to wish they had made this change earlier. I think people who litter are going to stop, are going to litter less. That's the goal of what I'm sharing. Right. And as I said, we're not going to, living means producing stuff that is poison to some, but it's food for others. Right. How we balance, how much we, how much of the stuff we produce with how much joy we get if we didn't produce it, or for that matter, how much we develop the skills to create the joy without those things. Because people before plastic weren't dying in the streets. Or if they were, it was not, it's very easy to take what I said and say, yes, they were. Like, <laughs> there was like, the people lived to be like 30 years old and that's it. But actually, if we go back way before that, they lived to like 70, 80 years old. Right. I don't know the numbers. But you know, if they died in childbirth, that's one thing. But if they made it through childhood, they'd live long and healthy lives. So people who are new to the field and think black and white, it's either full on everything we can do, everything is progress, just push on technology and innovation, everything. And that's the way, and one day we'll cure all diseases mm-hmm. and we'll, everyone will be happy all the time or something like that. The, and if we don't do that, 
Josh, you're saying we want to go back to the Stone Age and we're all going to die in childbirth. We're all going to like that black and white thinking. That's what happens when people enter a field for the first time. They don't really know what's right. the nuance and so forth. We don't have to lose stuff that we've gained. And a lot of the gaining would happen faster if, and under slightly different systems than we have now. I mean, there's a lot more effort that going into curing diabetes or treating diabetes than helping people not get diabetes in the first place. Mm-hmm. It's not very profitable. You know what I'm talking about, right? right. I'm not going to go into depth on that. And I think we'd get a lot more of that with some of the changes in accounting and so forth like that. Right now, we're not even talking about it. Right now, it's not under consideration. You and I are talking about it in a right. way that had, had the experience that Google not happened. It was pure chance. Right. Luck. I mean, right? Because if exactly. you had known the, the title before you went, you would have gone. <laughs> what would it have? <laughs> but this conversation that you and I are having mm-hmm. is, I think, informed by your experience. And for me to talk to you about statistics would probably lead you to disengage mm-hmm. because it, it probably would provoke your anxiety, right. not decrease your anxiety. And so all these people who are saying you should change, but well, I really, my stuff is so important that I, I'm not going to change. Well, that just tells everyone else to say you change while well, I don't change. Right. So when you say to me, wait a minute, stop. You might lead me. You want to get me to not fly. Right. I want to get you to enjoy your life as much as you can. And I think that probably your balance will change when you look a little bit more, when you experience more. Uh-huh. Maybe you'll fly more. Right. When you lead people for them to make the choices on their own as opposed to coerce or use authority, if a democratic process leads people to go in a different direction than I would, I'm like, well, I'm a human, they're a human. Like right. I, I I don't know what else to do. Right. But I think that a lot of people will move in a direction of society as a whole, saying you can't smoke in a hospital, you can't smoke in a in a third grade classroom. When I, was, when I was in high school, the principal in my school smoked a, a, a pipe. I don't think that would be allowed anymore. Even if it's legal, I doubt he would do it again. And I think that a lot of things that right now are legal or subsidized, I think that would change. And businesses would shift, as they always have. That's, that's entrepreneurship. That's, right. I mean, some will see opportunity. And, you know, we, we have to figure out how to help people affected by the adjustment. But we don't make horse and buggy whips anymore. <laughs> And I would think that businesses, business people would get this most that, as I was saying before we were recording, you know, we used to make GM, Chrysler, Ford, the big three made cars where safety was a secondary issue. Right. After Chrome, after acceleration, after dreamboat ride and size and so forth, then it was maybe they'd consider, they'd say if they could make a cheaper seatbelt, if they could save money on a seatbelt, they would. And- there were signs from the market of people buying Toyotas and, and Volkswagens in the 60s that sales were going up. And the big three ignored it. But you can't sell a car these days without safety being a major, major part of it. Exactly. And we know that it makes the cars heavier to have the, the crumple zones. It makes the cars more expensive. It makes them require more gas. But we all pay that. And I don't think people begrudge that. And... I think people are happy to, with that change once they know what's going on. This is the way I see environmental, cultural views of it evolving. Right. I think that it's, uh, it all goes into the way it is packaged and presented. It is neatly packaged and everyone understands what's happening, how it will affect them, and then present it to the masses. 
you know, people might be more receptive to say, okay, I will hear you out, I will listen. But I think that the moment that people that are right now at the forefront that are pushing this, they're saying, you've got to do this, and this is, if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen because you're a bad person, people completely shut down and they're turned off. And like you said, like with the numbers, throwing all the numbers out there, and the number says this and that and that, you've already, they've already tuned out. But if it is presented in a way such that, you know, this is not going to cure all the problems. This is, this is just one aspect of it that we could probably improve on. And still, you can live a happy life. But the moment you start saying, stop it, cut it out, you can't do it anymore, and we're just going to eradicate it immediately, you know, there's always going to be a pushback. And people aren't going to be receptive. And they're not going to want to listen. They're not going to want to do it. If anything, they're going to fight against it. And then you'll have what we have now, the discourse with both sides screaming at the other, and nothing gets done. And we, we keep seeing the statistics, we keep seeing the things that are around us, things that are changing, you know. So I think that if it's packaged the way it should be packaged with a nice bow, and like, okay, let's have the conversation, here it is, you know, and it's, it's up to you. We're not forcing you to do this. We're not passing laws saying you've got to do it. Then slowly people might say, okay, this is making sense. I see it in my day-to-day. I see how this will affect me. Maybe I can buy into this a little bit, you know. And you take it from there. Because, again, I, I point back to we first had our conversation and I had you, uh, we did the podcast. And the response from people, it wasn't, I, I went back and I constantly look at the responses. People weren't attacking. They weren't saying, and I thought they would, they weren't saying this guy's nuts. This doesn't make any sense. It was more so along the lines of, yeah, I hear what you're saying. You know, maybe, maybe not. But it wasn't that, you know, the viciousness that I had anticipated. It was something completely different, you know. And then we did a second posting as to, you know, cooking and not using packaged goods. It was the same thing. There was more of a curiosity as to what was being said and where you're going with this. So, again, I think that if it's, it's all in the way that it's presented to people, the way people are going to perceive it, receive it, and then respond. But if you're on a bully pulpit or your soapbox, it's going to be a complete shutdown. Yeah, I mean, if one person says, I'm right, then the other one's going to be like, no, I'm right. What does that get you? Right, right. Because I am not, and I don't want anyone to think it, that I'm completely, like, I, I do believe, again, that the world will end. And just having Googled, you know, when plastic was first introduced, 1907. So you think about it, if it takes like 100 years for this stuff to, you know, go away, we haven't, it hasn't, I guess the first plastic that was created then is just now being dissolved. So when you think about it and what we're doing now, and again, plastic is a major player in our lives. You cannot get rid of it. It was the latest and the greatest thing. Mm-hmm. So it's virtually impossible. Maybe we could cut back on it or reduce. Like pe- things in package, you could probably get rid of that. You can go back to the brown paper for meats and whatnot. But then, too, people want to get rid of meats. See, it's just a vicious cycle. <laughs> Josh, it's a vicious cycle. One thing, get rid of this, you want to get rid of that. That's why I bristle so much when people say things like, here's one little thing you can do for the environment, or here's what you can do that's small, because then you get compliance at best, but you're reinforcing that someone doesn't want to do it. Right. You don't say, here's one little thing to do when you expect that person's going to like it. So when it's meaningful, then whatever size step you take at first, if you're doing it for your own reasons... Whether it affects the world or not, you're making your life better. That's what I'm trying to get people started right. with. And then they take the next step. Even if you just look at the next step and say, well, that's too much. I don't want to do it. At least you've taken one step. But I suspect that you'll feel like 
I don't know, maybe this will happen with you, maybe it won't happen with you. But you'll say, all right, it didn't quite work that way. Maybe I'll adjust it and maybe I'll, if you like the experience in some way, then you'll continue it. And the way to solve hard problems, I mean, if it's one person solving like an engineering problem, there's one set of things, but when it's a society, you got to work at these things. I mean, no one in 1850 knew the solution to slavery. Right. No one in 1930s knew how to handle fascism. And those came to pretty severe wars. Right. And you could see major conflict coming over environmental issues. If we're running out of access to clean water, if we're running out of access to land that can support the number of people to, to, to produce the food, you can see right. wars over resource happening. I would like to use what we learned from the past to avoid that. I mean, imagine people got serious about figuring out slavery in like 1776 mm -hmm. or 1775. Right. Or when was the constitution? It was like 1789, I forget. Mm -hmm. Uh, now I'm like, 1776? Well, that was the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. So I don't know when they ratified the Constitution or wrote the Constitution, but I think it was after the Revolutionary War. 1789 sticks in my mind, but maybe that's the French Revolution. In any case, I wish it didn't get into the Constitution in the first place. Right. That would have been a lot easier problem to solve. I mean, I'm sure they worked at it then, but what you said reminded me of something I meant to say earlier about when, when people have not themselves tried to live by the values that they're proposing others live by, they harp on the details and they harp, like they talk about not your anxiety. They don't talk about your anxiety. They don't talk about your um, frustrations or anything like that because they haven't felt it. Right. So they're pushing on the wrong buttons. And that's why we're not facing the actual issues that are actually motivating people. Not the issues that are, the, what's motivating people. For you, it's one, it's one set of things. For others, it's other sets of things. And what I try to do in my technique, why I start with what does the environment mean to you? That's the issue for each person. That's what motivates that person. And that's why I have to start with what they care about, what you care about, what each person cares about. Right. And why I don't say to people, try for yourself separating your garbage. I say, sit down with your husband, with your wife, with your kids, with your neighbors, whoever's supportive and non-judgmental, and ask them what the environment means to them. And have them ask you what it means to you and keep going back and forth until something comes out that's really meaningful. Sometimes it's a memory, sometimes it's an image, sometimes it's a story, sometimes it's an interaction with family or friends, sometimes it's a fear of the future, whatever. Everyone's got their thing because we all breathe air. Right. And we all drink water and we can't separate these things. We can't privatize air. I'm sure people are working on it. <laughs> but where we are now, we're all breathing the same air. Right. And so someone's got something that motivates them. And when they you give someone the chance to act on that motivation, then they're doing something that they care about. And then, then it's something that they care about. Then it's something that they're doing for themselves. Mm -hmm. And they'll progress as, as far as they progress. I predict that they'll not stop because we live in a severely polluted world. I should just say polluted world. Whether it's severe or not, it's up to that's opinion. But I think that the more people are aware of it, the more they'll want to do on their own. And to our talking about left and right, political sides, mm -hmm. when we stop making it, you have to do this. Stop telling me what to do. And more about, Geez, my, my neighbor, like this garbage on my lawn. Right. That my kids got asthma. Mm -hmm. I can do something about this. And even if I don't fix everything, at least I'll make my world better. That will continue. That will keep going. Right. Because it's not, like you said, it's not a political problem. It's a people issue, that world problem that we should try and address and to look at. Because once we started to break it down into left-right issue, political issues, no one's going to listen because everyone thinks their side has the answer of what they're saying is the right thing, as opposed to listening, stopping, st to stop and listen 
and have the discussion as we're doing. But as you said earlier, had I known that the class you were teaching at Google was going to, you know, somewhat move in that direction, I probably would have walked out. I probably wouldn't even have gone, you know. So how do you get people to the table to have those conversations unless they know that I'm not going to be made to feel guilty, you're not going to attack me, or just having a simple conversation. So we're starting with a simple conversation, and then from there, creating, I guess, actionable items or that you can deliver on and measure and say, okay, this is what we're doing. And like you say, you're doing it for yourself, you know, not doing it for me, not doing it for you, but you're doing it for yourself because you're being true to your values. Because the moment it's broken down into those little silos, people will go to their own little corner and say, what I'm saying is right and what you're saying is wrong. Yeah, and the conversations and also the actions. Right. There's no requirement that anyone take a leadership role in environmental issues. But if people want to, first of all, from a business sense, the opportunities are phenomenal. And this is like, I've had on the show people who are leaders who reach leadership positions in Apple, in Google, in the federal government, in GE, mm-hmm. in McDonald's from acting on environmental things. These opportunities are incredible. Right. And whenever you have something that like billions of people want, first, high demand. Mm-hmm. And then when people aren't acting on it, low supply. Right. This is an incredible opportunity, but everyone's thinking, oh, it's a distraction. Well, that's following. That's not leading. Mm-hmm. So people that take a leadership. Anyone listening to me now, you want to get ahead in your career? This is a leadership position. Right. And if you disagree with different things, act on what you care about. Act on what it means to you and, and see how far you get. So that's a huge opportunity. But if people, whether they want to make their careers happen, and by the way, for the celebrities out there, the opportunity to have a legacy that will last for a long time. For people who are very well known right now, you know, I'm thinking of like Oprah, LeBron, Serena, the names I always come up with first. Mm-hmm. If they were to act on these things, the legacy LeBron has with basketball is going to be tiny compared to if he were to follow in the footsteps of Muhammad Ali. I don't know if I talked to you about Muhammad Ali with the resisting the draft and not going. Right. So Ali is certainly known as the greatest of all time boxer, but he's also known for being a statesman. Right. That opportunity is available to anyone. They're so crazy that I'm going to end up being famous and doing it first before these ones who are already famous can do it. And they're all doing these little things like straws, which, yeah, fine, do the straws, but get to the next stage. Right. And seize the opportunity of being, did I ever tell you about the Buddha stuff? No. So the story I know of of Buddha, the guy known as Buddha, was he was born a prince and he was protected from all the problems in the world. And then at some point he saw someone suffering and he was like, oh, whoa, something's different than I expected. And so he goes out and it's like, how do I deal with suffering? And so he goes off and he becomes an ascetic, you know, like stars himself and lives a ascetic lifestyle. And it's like, well, this doesn't fix it either. And then he found a way to be happy, which he ended up teaching, which is Buddhism. And why do we know him today, 2,500 years later? Because he was so happy. Because mm-hmm. he was able to share happiness very effectively. He made people around him so happy that they shared it with other people. There were a lot of princes in his time. No one knows them. Everyone knows Buddha. They could have been happier first. Some future generations are going to look back and say, they, we could have the people who acted first. There could be someone, like, there is the opportunity for people to have legacies on the Buddha-Jesus timescale. Right. <laughs> Plato timescale. Yeah. Right. And they're thinking of like, but I want to go to see the Eiffel Tower mm-hmm. or they want to do something on straws and they could have, whoever steps up and is a leader, think of all the people who are in the class of like, we know them by their first name and no one asks like Elon who. Mm-hmm. So you think of, of people who've won Oscars, people who've won sports championships, people who have held office, people who have, you know, cultural 
artists and whatever, all these people have at their hand, like right there for them is whoever, which one of them of of that level acts genuinely and authentically. So no being a spokesman to the UN about the environment while you're flying back and forth across the country in a Learjet, (laughs) right? That's not it. Right. If Leonardo simply lived it, or I think LeBron, he's in LA. If he did what Muhammad Ali did and said, look, I'm just not going to do it. Look at my post on this or my, my podcast episode on this, but you know, he had to sacrifice, they stripped him of his boxing license and his passport. So he couldn't fight and he couldn't leave the country to fight somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I don't know what poor means in his context, but he was like struggling in the prime of his career. He could have, I'm sure that if he had said, all right, I'll go, then right. it'd be like, all right, we'll put you in the USO. You'll never have to face any, any risk of combat. We just want you to like support the cause and you being support of the war would be more powerful than you actually being fighting in the front lines. Right. He could have had a cushy thing. He didn't do that. And by the way, let's not forget that at the time, the last major war, there was Korea, but like we'd beat Hitler. And to say, like to criticize the U.S. Army is like a pretty big deal. Right. And so I don't think people viewed him, they're like, shut up and fight. Uh-huh. And instead he lived by his values. He stuck with it. A lot of people disagreed, but I think a lot of people agree with him now right. that might not have then. I'm sure people still disagree with him. But if LeBron were to do, if he were to say, now, I don't know his values. He might say, you know, I think it's a very high value that we should burn as much fossil fuels as we can. I think we should just throw plastic in the wind and that might be his values, in which case I got nothing to work with. (laughs) Maybe he's like, PCBs, bring them on. I don't know. But if he shares something that's meaningful to him. Right. And I say, well, can you act on that in the process that I did with you? Right. I think he might come up with something. If he kept following that, maybe, let's just say he came up with, and I'm not pushing anyone in this direction, but what if he said, I, I'm not going to fly for a year? Yeah, I, but I, I don't think he would go with that because then he wouldn't be able to go to the games, but something ah. else, he would have to go early. I mean, if he was playing, if he's playing, let's say in New York, he would have to take a train, have to start out early to get there. It's possible, but would he want to do that? So he would probably want to start with something small, but like he said, something meaningful. And if he did it, everyone else would say, well, if he could do it, let's see if, I can do it. Yeah. And Muhammad Ali was Cassius Clay. Yeah. And he didn't say right off the bat, I'm going to resist this war. Right. He took lots of steps. And I don't know deeply about his relationships with Malcolm X, but Malcolm X was a big part of that, him taking these steps. So he didn't jump from winning the heavyweight championship of the world to like Vietnam, right? That was a hard decision. But you know who else was making a hard decision at that time? Uh, Martin Luther King was struggling because he was against it, but Civil Rights Act passed, great relationship with Lyndon Johnson. Right. Only after Muhammad Ali came out could Martin Luther King come out publicly against Vietnam, which he called his greatest speech ever. Mm-hmm. So there's a mix, of, a mix of community. There's a mix of the step-by-step internally figuring out what to do yourself. So LeBron, yeah, I'm not saying that he would have the conversation I had and say, like, I'm going to go for it without flying for a year. Almost no one has challenged flying and I've talked with hundreds, maybe thousands of people by now doing this process. He would have to get there on his own, but he might. Right. And if, if part of his motivation was that he could be the next Muhammad Ali as opposed to the next Michael Jordan, because tough to say, I think, I think Muhammad Ali's name will last longer than Michael Jordan's. I'm not sure. Ooh, interesting. But if, you know, if he wants to have a reputation more like Buddha and Jesus than Michael Jordan, because I know those names are going to last longer than right. Jordan's. <laughs> That's there for him. And if that's his motivation, that's his business. Right. But it's open for him. And if he does that, the whole NBA, the whole NFL, Major League Baseball, hockey, they're all going to be like, oh, 
that'll change everything. Right, right. And, yeah, that would be and, monumental. <laughs> and if it's Leo who decides, he's won Oscars, right? He must have. The Caprio. Yeah. yeah. And if a major person there changes, history will look at them like Jackie Robinson, like Oscar Schindler. There's a reason we made a movie about Schindler and not the Germans who said, this is terrible, but what can I do? Right, right. But then it would affect so many things that LeBron is doing that people, well, I don't want to say people right, but people as a whole would say, nope, but he's not doing it completely because even if he's not flying, some of the things that he's marketing. Exactly what they said about, about um, Muhammad Ali. Yeah. And it's a big mess, but I predict that whoever does it first, they'll get a bit of a challenge and that's not going to endure very long. And then people are going to start following more than they're challenging. Right. Because I think people are looking for that. I think people know how much waste they're producing. Right. And I think people know that, as you said, people on the right are saying, stop telling me what to do. Mm-hmm. And besides, you're doing it. Right. What you're telling me to stop. And when the role model is no longer anti what we're looking for, then I think, I think that's what people are looking for. I think people are actually looking for people living by it. And I couldn't say this. If living this way led to misery... I would say, don't live this way mm-hmm. and take the misery later when it comes. Right. The crazy thing that I didn't expect was that it, it's the community enjoying the connection. And for those who switch and find that it, it's awful, I presume they're going to switch back. Right. Now, some will switch back, not because it's awful, because of the living more simply is, is so awful, but because they're swimming upstream and no one accepts it. Mm-hmm. But once a lot of people do, assuming that happens then I think people, they'll find the switch easier. So each person who switches, the next one's easier for them to switch. Right. And, and I think something that you said earlier on when you were talking about people doing it, and you had asked me, will I continue? And I said, well, I doubt it, seriously. But then I said that, you know, when I'm taking out my garbage, I might say, mm, let me just take this out. I'm not going to separate it initially, but I'll take it out. So it goes back to a word that you said, adjustments. If a person starts it and there's no enjoyment, they say, oh, I don't think so. If they decide not to continue, there is always that possibility that what they did is in their mind, and then they'll make adjustments to get to that point as to what they were doing, that they said there was no joy in doing it. But I know that by doing it, I am helping the environment or making a difference. So I might not do it this way, but I might do it that way. Hence, the adjustment comes in. And then they're able to fit it to their lifestyle so that they're able to do it on a smaller scale. But like you said... Everything counts. It's not how big or how small it is. It's that the fact that you are doing something. So the adjustment comes into play. Yeah, and and people do it for their own reasons. I mean, when I heard about corn syrup and how it affected my health, or let's take um, hydrogenated oils. Mm -hmm. When I grew up, I thought my vague understanding was that like unsaturated fat and saturated fat, like saturated fat was less healthy than unsaturated fat. This is what I learned. And that partially hydrogenated oil was somewhere in between. I later learned that uh, hydrogenated oil was less healthy than saturated. And, it, and the process by which it happens is you bubble hydrogen through oil. Now, no one accidentally bubbles hydrogen through oil. That's a, you have to make a hard decision to do that. And you have to build manufacturing to make that happen. So someone made a big decision to make hydrogenated oil. Now, okay, it makes a flakier crust and it has longer shelf life and so forth. So definitely profit, but also hardens your arteries more and fills up with plaque and stuff. And and I received a message that said, it's not as unhealthy as some of the other stuff that's already out there. 
Now, I believe that I was lied to. <laughs> and I eat unhealthy stuff all the time. <laughs> I don't want to do business with someone who, for their profit, told me, fed me lines. I just don't want to do business with them. I wasn't looking for how to make my life healthier. I just felt like I can't do business with them. And suddenly I found myself unable, unwilling to buy stuff from them. And that was the end of hydrogen oil for me. Since then, I've not bought a product. If I look at the ingredients and it's in there and I will look, I'm not going to buy it. Right. I thought it was going to be like, it turns out I knocked out like half the supermarket. <laughs> and I didn't know that was coming. And so when it came time to challenge myself to go for no packaging, buy no food packaging for a week, I'd had this experience of like, oh, I knocked out the whole half the supermarket one day and didn't mean for it. But it, it, it evolved from this process that you're describing about adjusting and just kind of asking myself, certainly I like the crispity crunchiness of stuff that's been fried in that oil. Uh, certainly I, I like convenience. Right. And those things are more convenient. And the mouthfeel is there. Now I, I come to view that mouthfeel as it's disgusting to me. Uh, I didn't mean for that to happen. Like if someone put a Dorito in front of me, I don't know if that's hydrogenated oil, but Twinkie or whatever, there would have to be a negotiation process because I don't know how much money you'd have to pay me to eat it. Mm. Like a lot. Really? You'd have to pay me a lot of money to eat a Twinkie. Yeah, I don't like Twinkies. <laughs> and I mean, I gave you some, some of that kohlrabi earlier. Right. To me, that kohlrabi is so much more delicious than Doritos. And when I first ate a kohlrabi, I thought, ah, there's no flavor in this at all. It's like, I couldn't taste any flavor, but now there's much more flavor and nuance. Right. And this is what I believe I'm sharing and why I, I feel comfortable persisting with people is I'm sharing broccoli tastes better than Doritos if your taste buds adjust. And so everyone out there, now there are going to be some people whose taste buds will never adjust. They're right. not willing, they're not able, whatever. I don't know. I can't speak to that. But I think, I think most people would agree that time spent with the actual people around you, your neighbors, will often, I don't know where the right balance is for each person, but whatever the balance is right now between spending time with your neighbors and spending time seeing the Eiffel Tower, I think that a lot of people will find more time with the neighbors that they will like it. Mm. Like, I, I, I forget if I was recording when I said this, but what does it say about a community? What happens to a community if everyone in that community, and in Manhattan, everyone is this way. I mean, not everyone, but like overwhelmingly, that at least once a year, they feel compelled that they must get at least a thousand miles away. I think that contributes to the litter. I think that can, what problems don't get solved? How much polarization does that create? And if the only association you have with flying is Eiffel Tower, or if the only association you have with Twinkies is that they taste delicious. I mean, when you're a kid, I still remember that one time I was at someone's house mm -hmm. and there was a box of Twinkies on the counter and I opened up the box and I took it, the Twinkies in that cellophane and you kind of, you can squeeze it. Yep. And you open it up and that, and that sweet smell comes out that now would make me wretch. But at the time it was like, oh, and then my, my teeth would pierce the spongy outside, which is not baked, but as a result of some chemical reaction, as far as I know. Uh -huh. And my teeth go in and then that cream, C-R-E-M-E, -E, because it's not C-R-E-A-M, because yeah. there's no dairy in it. Yeah. And it's cool to your tongue and it's sweet. And I think I ate like eight. Wow. <laughs> I mean, whatever it was, like I didn't stop at one. I, I was like, it was so good. And 
I really liked it. I, mean, I really, I, look, I've been to six continents. Uh-huh. I've been to at least two dozen countries, including right. North Korea. You know, right. it's like the travel is like, I, I like the results of it. Uh-huh. And so I can't say that anyone listening to me now is like their experiences that I know their experience. They know it. I don't. Right. Because someone might say, I'm going to interrupt you. They would say, you've been to all these places. So you've had your fill and taste of life. I haven't been. So now I want to go. But if I stop flying, I can't go. And while you're not telling me or advocating that I should stop, but still, if I were, then one could say, okay, now you're contributing to making the world a better place. So if I were to say, okay, I'll get rid of the plastic, I'll get rid of all the other stuff, but I'm not going to stop flying. Well, that's, that's basically everyone that I've talked to so far. Uh-huh. And look, I just want people to make a more informed decision based on experience, because you, you can talk about carbon dioxide levels, you can talk about pollution, but ultimately the decisions are made based on, on their view of the world. Right. And that's, if their view of the world is the same view that produces the situation that we have, all the pollution and, and the fish dying out in the ocean, all that stuff, then I hope that they'll reconsider this, this view. Mm-hmm. And I think that they will. Now, I don't think that they're going to get to flying right away. If you had said to me, after I went a week with, without, package, without buying any packaged food, if you had said, well, think about not flying, I'd be like, what? Right. When was the last time you flew? March 2016. So I'm about to start my fifth year. Wow. Okay. And you start figuring things out. So three weeks, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how long it would take you for you doing some stuff that I predict some of it will stick. And I don't know what. And you'll probably be like, all right, part of it will become normal for you of something sorting something. Right. I don't know. And maybe it won't go. Maybe it won't. I don't know. But you've changed. Mm -hmm. Your reaction to other people will change. And you're one person. I think that my goal is to get a lot of people changing this way. And my, I mean, I'm rehearsing with you. Part, everyone I'm working with is rehearsal. So when I'm sitting there with Oprah on a program <laughs> special, that that's not the time to figure out how does this technique work? Mm-hmm. That's when to be supportive and non-judgmental and, right. and relate with her and give her the opportunity that unfortunately she's giving me, which is to set an example for the world. Right, right. And I think that people will find that they like broccoli more than Doritos. <laughs> but it's really tough. Broccoli over Doritos. I guess the way, apples, to me, I, I eat a lot of apples, but it used to be, when I eat Ben and Jerry's, apples were like, okay, they taste okay, but not as good as Ben and Jerry's. Right. And if you give me a bunch of Ben and Jerry's and I eat it every day or every week or, you know, I used to always have ice cream in my freezer. Always. And at that time, an apple was like, okay, but not really good. Right. Now, again, like, you'd have to pay me more to eat ice cream than, the, than a Twinkie. And do I want sugar in my life? No, I want the sensation of sweetness. Right. Now I have more sensation of sweetness, even though I'm having less sugar, no added sugar. Uh-huh. And I get also the complex richness of like, that's a red apple. That's a brown, that's a Fuji. That's a Granny Smith. Uh-huh. And they're different, but they're both apples. It's, it's intriguing to me that that has woken up to me that I'm like, those are almonds, but up there I got, cashews and pecans and like pecans I won't put in a stew. Uh-huh. I forgot if I told you because the pecans taste so good. They don't mix. They, they go on their own. Right. I don't want to like lose that nuance. Uh-huh. Same with the macadamia nuts. And likewise within a bike ride or bus ride of where we are right now, there is as much as I can get from a plane ride if I choose to do it. 
if I let the skills of creating adventure and discovering cuisine and creating connection and finding differences with people, but not just like look at them like they're zoo creatures, <laughs> but meet them and understand right. them and learn from them. If we let those skills atrophy, then we lose the ability to make our lives as rich as we could. Happiness and joy and discovery and, and those things aren't out there. Those are, we can create those. Marco Polo never flew, but I put to you that he traveled more than people who have gone thousands of times more miles. Right. We can travel like Marco Polo right now. And it doesn't have to be his way. We can create for ourselves right. what he did for himself. Not that he was trying to travel. I don't know what his goals were. Right. But pick something you get from travel. You can get that other ways if you try. Because we have the emotional system where these emotions come from evolved a long time ago. And every emotion you could feel, people felt earlier. But they did it without flying. Right. So we could too. I've been going on for a while. <laughs> How does it sound? No, I think that we covered, uh, you know, a lot of the different topics uh, with me starting out with what I was doing with my uh, plastic and bottles, glass. But I think a takeaway from me, again, uh, and it just stands out in my head, the adjustments. Well, like I said, I don't know if I will continue separating the two. I probably won't, but I'll probably make an adjustment so that when... I am taking my garbage to its final destination. I'll make, I might say, hey, well, let me just take the, uh, the glass out and sit it to the side, you know, and put the plastic here, you know. So it's, again, it's the way that it's presented and it's packaged that you walk away and you're thinking about these things as opposed to just dismissing them completely, as would have been the case had someone been preaching to me to try this. I probably would have made every effort not to do it, to say, I'm not doing this. You know, I don't believe what they're saying. You know, now it's more so, okay, it's not going to hurt if I do it. It's not going to hurt if I don't do it. So why not do it? You know, so it's the, the way that it's presented. How are your listeners going to respond to this? Can you speculate? Yeah, I, I, I strongly believe and think that they'll probably, the same way that I'm responding, they'll say, oh, okay, this person wasn't preachy at Rob, Rob J.H. one, And, uh, you know, there is a better way. And then they'll say, because the people on the left, they're always preaching to us and telling us we got to do this and we got to do that, whereas there's a better way of doing it. Because like you said, I think that everyone is concerned about the environment, but it's the way that it's presented, you know, so that people will walk away and say, okay, I hear what you're saying. I might not agree. I might not do it, but you're not preaching at me. And you're not telling me that I'm doing something that's extremely wrong. So I think my viewers will listen and say, oh, okay, okay. Whether or not they're going to respond, I think that in their own, and I'll say that little way, they'll probably make an adjustment. And who knows, someone is probably doing it already, you know, being also aware that, you know, what I'm doing is not going to cause the entire world just to go down. But the little bit that I am doing goes a long way. I mean, I, yeah, now I'm curious to see what, what happens. <laughs> well, let's wrap up this conversation. I'm not sure. I guess after we hang up, we'll figure, or after we stop recording, we'll figure out like how to go next. Mm -hmm. And on this podcast, I'd like to talk to people about their experiences. Right. And so I could say, do you want to talk again to talk about how the experience evolved after this conversation? Because I don't know if, if you're going to continue and how your adjustments will go, if any. Uh -huh. But we could also just do something of on your show. Right. Which I've done. Exactly. Or, or other media outlets or something like that. I don't know. Well, I think one of the things I definitely want to, I guess, top on 
touch on, rather, uh, some of the blogs that you've been posting that I found some of the topics were rather interesting. And I think that some of the things that you've blogged about, that these conversations are being had on a larger level, but not out in the open. I think that people are having these conversations in the privacy with friends, people that they feel that they can talk to, like we're talking now. And I would recommend everyone go and look at your blog. But I think that where we are in society now, we're afraid to freely discuss certain things out of fear that someone's going to be offended or I'm going to be called called out or someone's going to ambush me that I can't talk my true self. So I have to couch it and be extremely careful. But I think with you and I, since we've been speaking over the past uh, four weeks now, we've just covered a number of topics and topics that I wouldn't think having just met you that we would talk. But I think there's that, you know, there's been no pretense from what I've seen. And there's just been a flow of conversations, different topics that we've touched on. So I think that I might be interesting for your viewers as well as mine to hear some of the things that we've been talking about, our experiences, especially given the fact that we're from different backgrounds, politically, socioeconomic level, just geographically, just completely different, that people are able to have these conversations without fear of reprisal or someone screaming at them or, you know, attacking them. And that they can be, and these conversations should be had. I concur. Yeah, I think maybe we go back and forth between podcasts or maybe- Absolutely. And uh, yeah, the audience will be like, what's going on? Yeah, what's going on? But I think that it's needed, especially where we are in society today, whereby people only want to hear their side and no one else and are afraid to bring up different topics on race, sex, politics, just the entire gamut. People are afraid to do it for whatever reason. Uh, I think that we feel as if though we can't have these conversations because that uh, someone might be offended or might be attacked. And I don't know, when we start our conversations, I mean, we've touched on different things. Maybe at some point uh, we might start talking about something that you might feel uncomfortable or I might feel uncomfortable. But I think that having those conversations Outwardly and letting people hear us have the conversations, you know, they might walk away with uh, thoughts or whatnot. Who knows? What's the closing line to uh, Casablanca? Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> Let's hope so. You never know. Let's close on there. You can't yes. go bad quoting Casablanca. Yes, yes, I agree. I agree. So the listeners will find out what we figure out next. So stay tuned. Yes. Stay tuned. Thanks a lot. Thank you. I found it refreshing to continue to learn Rob's perspective and to air out a few views of my own to someone that, in another context, I think we might both assume the other one wouldn't understand and we wouldn't continue. So here we got to talk and listen. I'm curious where his environmental challenge will go. He may stop, but I suspect something will linger and he'll keep going with it in some way. After we stopped recording, we scheduled recording video next time. I'm not sure if we'll record there for his podcast, for this podcast, or something new. In any case, I'd love your thoughts on this episode. It's a different direction than I think a lot of people would have expected. I'm glad to see how it's going. I'd love your thoughts. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.